Since 1972, Braun Industries has been a custom ambulance manufacturer focused on safety, quality, and innovation. Each Braun module is unique well beyond the chassis it's built on. With six ambulance models, limitless features, and all customizable options, let Braun assist you in designing the perfect custom ambulance to suit your needs. Learn more at www.braunambulances.com. Is your fire department prepared to face challenges like the turbulent economy, recruiting and retention, and funding? Level up and get the training and strategies you need on the issues that matter most at WAVE 2023. Featuring ESO Training Academy on April 11th through the 14th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. ESO, a leading provider of fire RMS and EPCR software, brings together national industry leaders, quality training, and experienced fire and EMS professionals for a unique conference experience that will inspire you to drive change within your organization and prepare for 2023's challenges. For a limited time, our listeners can use the discount code FIRETRUCK to save $100 on a full four-day conference pass. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from some of the nation's top experts in emergency services. Visit ESOWave.com to register today. That's E-S-O-W-A-V-E.com. See you in Austin on April 11th through the 14th, 2023. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, this is uh, Chip Comstock, and I am your host tonight of another episode of Fire Service Court. Unfortunately, uh, my co-hosts, Brad Pinsky, Kurt Verone, uh, and John Murphy were unable to attend, so I'll be hosting this show uh, solo. Uh, this evening, I was going to talk about or attend to talk about my recent opportunity uh, to testify before the U.S. Senate uh, in Washington, D.C., regarding the recent derailment in uh, East Liverpool, or I'm sorry, East Palestine, Ohio, which is about... Uh, 15 miles uh, from my house and fire district. Um, I, I serve as chief of the Western Reserve Joint Fire District uh, in Poland, Ohio, and um, our department uh, did respond to that incident, although I was uh, not present at any any time. Um, for those of you who followed the uh, the um, incident on the news. Uh, a number of cars derailed, uh, located just outside, outside of the village of East Palestine, and uh, vinyl chloride, amongst other chemicals, uh, leaked and presented a, ha- a, a hazard uh, by way of both uh, the chemical itself uh, leakage and uh, the fire that resulted from the derailment. Um, at one point, uh, over 50 firefighters, uh, or I'm sorry, 50 fire departments, 
from Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia responded to the scene. Um, the derailment, you know, shed light on uh, the rail industry and how they've uh, uh, run railroads, and, and uh, it's also uh, presented various safety issues um, that that uh, have been um, examined by elected officials. And, and the purpose of the hearing, uh, as called by the Senate's uh, Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation was to examine how uh, the industry uh, and, and uh, Congress itself should improve rail safety in the aftermath of the East Palestine derailment. The, uh, the result, I, I believe, uh, from the derailment is that uh, the government, uh, both in terms of uh, local, state, and federal officials, are going to closely examine not only rail operations, but they're going to examine uh, at, they're going to examine the needs of uh, local firefighters as to how we uh, should should be responding to these incidents. Specifically, I think there's going to be an examination as to uh, how we better train the nation's firefighters and how we better equip the nation's firefighters to respond to hazardous material incidents, including the derailments of a nature uh, that we saw, uh, including those in rural areas. Um, the issue that I discussed was that uh, the areas where trail uh, uh, railways operate uh, often um, uh, are found in a rural area served by volunteer departments that, that generally lack resources, uh, training support, the taxpayer, and the ma uh, manpower uh, to respond to, you know, a large um, hazmat incident. Um, and there was um, testimony regarding the fact that, that we do need not only equipment but the training. One of the things I found interesting is that the trend of, of uh, rail car derailments, and there was some difference as to the uh, trend, whether uh, um, between the uh, rail industry and the, the railway association and those representing workers uh, at the hearing, as to whether uh, safety is getting uh, worse or better. But the federal, we can uh, state that the Federal Rail Administration and the committee have noted that the number of hazmat cars involved in derailments has been increasing in recent years. In 1986, there were 1,411 hazardous material cars involved in derailments, but by 2021, that number had increased by 339% to 6,204. Additionally, according to the National Fire Protection Association, the annual number of fire department calls involving hazardous uh, incidents had increased considerably from 171,500 in 1986 to 420,000 in 2020. East Palestine and other incidents in the transport of hazardous materials demonstrates the need for local fire and emergency services to be prepared for such incidents. Now, according to the NFPA's 2020 U.S. Fire Service Needs Assessment, 70% of fire departments provide hazardous materials response and it's actually more common for fire departments to provide hazmat response than emergency medical services. This is even the case in smaller fire departments. The NFPA uh, conducts a needs assessment of fire departments. 
and the uh, most recent NFPA needs assessment surveyed fire departments on four levels of professional co uh, competence for responders to hazardous materials incidents. The, the four levels of professional competence are no certification, awareness level, operational level, and technician level. The NFPA defines operational as first responders trained at this level must meet the NFPA's awareness level training as well as any additional competency designed to allow the responder to implement or support actions to protect nearby persons, the environment, or property from effects of the release. Of the department surveyed, only 55% of personnel performing hazmat duties were certified at an operational level of competence. According to the 2020 U.S. Census, the population of East Palestine uh, is 4,761. Of a department surveyed of similar size, that the served populations between 2,500 and 5,000 people, only 53% of personnel performing hazmat duties uh, were certified in operational level of competence. This level of certification drops to 38% in departments that serve populations less than 2,500, with 23% of personnel having no certification at all. This data presents the safety and security risk not only to responders themselves, but also to the communities they protect. Now, I'd also add that the department that that data that I referenced is particularly alarming, considering 65% of the nation's fire departments serve a population of less than 5,000 people. The needs of departments serving the population size are of particular importance to many groups, including the one I was there representing, which was the National Volunteer Fire Council is 98% of the uh, department serving populations less than 2,500 are either all volunteer or mostly volunteer, and 96% of department serving populations between 2,500 and 5,000 are either or all mostly volunteer. Now, I want to discuss partially the importance and that we all should recognize of having training. Uh, whether we've been trained in the past or not, volunteers moving forward need to make sure that we are uh, professionally qualified. By that, I don't mean professionally in terms of a sense you might think it, but we need to be proficient in what we do. And we, to the extent your department is being asked to respond to an incident that may involve hazardous materials, we have to have some level of competence. I know there are states out there that do not um, necessarily require their firefighters to have certifications at the firefighter one or two levels, but generally it would be irresponsible of the fire department or an officer to send somebody into a burning building that had absolutely no fire training whatsoever. I think we have to think about the same thing with respect to EMS. We wouldn't ask uh, one of our personnel to, to address medical emergencies uh, on somebody who's having uh, you know, chest pain or difficulty breathing that had absolutely no training whatsoever in, um, uh, in EMS. And I think moving forward, we have to give some consideration as to, from a fire department standpoint, what are we going to require firefighters to uh, learn um, with respect to hazmat uh, responses. Um, 
the this national standard is uh, for firefighters uh, generally accepted to be operational level, but the statistics that we've seen show that we are um, miserably failing in our in our needs to be uh, trained uh, to that level of competence. Um, it is not easy, and, and I certainly recognize that, that, that for, for firefighters, uh, hazmat training is, is, well, can be boring, but it's also difficult uh, to access. And for rural departments, it, it's often cost prohibitive. Um, we, we understand that many times the, 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 the hazmat training we need isn't, isn't available or isn't available at times when uh, we're, the, the, we're working or from a, a perspective of, of location, it may be far away. And, and of course, every, time, every minute that we, we take away from our, our regular jobs or our families is, is, uh, is um, not easy and, and often uh, makes the, our uh, uh, burden of, and our burden slash love of serving our community uh, more, more difficult. Um, I, I want to take this opportunity to, to point out that there are a number of grants that are available. These are, these are grants provided through uh, the, um, the National um, and the United States Pipeline and Hazardous Material Safety Administration. It's referred as FEMSA, P-H-M-S-A-A, or Hazardous Materials Grants. And there's, there's a number of grants that are available through that uh, through that agency that we need to take avail, we need to take uh, advantage of, um, and, and some are provided to the state and are passed down through EMAs. And, and quite frankly, we need to make sure that our EMAs and our, our, uh, our um, a number of our other uh, organizations that, that are to be providing to these uh, grants to us through like LEPCs. Uh, are doing their jobs and, 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 and conducting that, that type of work. Um, one of the grants that's out there that I specifically wanted to mention, and, and this was one of the points of my testimony, was um, it's, it's a, uh, a grant that, that provides a, a supplemental technical training. It's referred to as the Supplemental Public Sector Training Grant Program. It's SP, SPST, and that uh, money has been awarded um, to the National Volunteer Fire Council. And I bring this up to um, the listeners because that grant is available for free. Um, and one of the things it seeks to do is, is provide training for train-to-trainer programs. So um, if, you're, if you have a lack of resources in your locale, um, you can get uh, train-to-trainer programs uh, within your county, within your department, um, and uh, set it up so you can then start training your department members or, or other firefighters within the county to be more proficient at responding to hazardous material incidents. The, uh, the NVFC has its, its partners in training pit crew and specifically, again, the project that I've mentioned uh, will help first responders gain the knowledge and skills they need to train others in the community on hazmat safety and response. Again, the, the, there are 15 specific in-person training opportunities across the U.S. at no cost to the department. Um, the the train-the-trainer aspect magnifies the program's impact by, again, uh, providing 
uh, trainers to go back to their departments and regions and spread the knowledge they've, they've obtained. There, there is uh, uh, the, the current bill being uh, considered by the Senate, uh, which is S-576 Railway Safety Act of 2023, uh, looks to increase that funding. And, and I'm confident that the Senate and, and ultimately Congress will pass that bill uh, in an effort to not only make the rail the railway operation safer, but to make our job safer um, through this additional training. Um, there's also has been discussions about uh, providing funding for hazardous materials uh, response teams, which which are important to provide additional funding for the LAPCs and to improve the methods of hazmat uh, product identification. Now again. We train on a regular basis to provide uh, responses to auto accidents, to uh, structure fires, and we're applicable to EMS incidents. I don't think we, as a, as a um, industry, meaning the, the fire service as a whole, we just don't train well enough on hazmat uh, incidents because, quite frankly, we don't see them very often. We see more accidents and, 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 and house fires or structure fires, and we think about those, we train for those, and, and we try to become proficient. We, and to the extent we're running EMS, we become a lot, we become very proficient in that because we're responding to those type of incidents on a regular basis. But we don't respond to the, the leaking uh, semi-truck full of gasoline uh, that often. We don't respond to railway incidents. We don't respond to incidents in fixed locations that may involve hazardous materials. And, and we need to do that. We have to understand, um, you know, what the uh, standards are for responding to those in terms of not only the uh, operation side and what we're supposed to do, but we have to have uh, an understanding of the um, uh, national standards and national incident management system. And, uh, you know, I just say that generally that if you're not familiar with that, uh, you, you need to think about uh, getting more proficient, more knowledgeable. Um, NIMS has been around for, for 20, 20 years almost. It was, it was really pushed after uh, September 11. Um, there's, you know, different processes. And, you know, the idea that we, we use incident command on every type of incident uh, and that it's flexible and grows. Uh, and and you should be you should be familiar with that because you know um, it, as an incident commander, if you're placed in that role as a volunteer firefighter, we never know who may be placed in that role. If you're if you're in a career department, certainly um, that that first line incident uh, commander may be a lieutenant, may be a captain, uh, may be an acting firefighter who's sitting in the officer's seat that day. Everybody from the top, from the from the top to the bottom, bottom to top, has to have some familiarity with it. And again, from our perspective, my perspective, um, firefighters as they come out of their basic training, in addition to hazmat um, ops, uh, should should be having the basic NIMS classes, which we discuss. You know, 100 and 200, and then there's uh, you have more responsibility, three and 400. Uh, three and four hundred are, are live classes, and get, gets back to our ability to try to deliver these courses. But again, departments, if you're going to do this, have to make some sort of effort to learn what's out there. 
for those of, of you who aren't uh, in the Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, West, West Virginia area and haven't been following the East Palestine uh, derailment, uh, it's been uh, more, than a, more than a month, uh, six to seven weeks out now. And the number of law firms and the number of lawsuits, last time I checked, there was uh, 23 or 24 lawsuits. There was just a uh, uh, note on the news tonight that a school system in western Pennsylvania had filed suit. And one of the issues that was raised on the news was that the, there was a detonation of, of, a, of a rail car, intentional release of this gas, that had a, a negative effect upon the school and school system downwind and that no consideration was given to them uh, prior to the release of these chemicals. Um, You know, I don't know what the validity is of any of these issues. I wasn't there. Uh, I had no knowledge of any of the decisions were made at the time, but I've certainly been following the lawsuits as they pile up and naming the railways, uh, naming, you know, that the uh, pointing fingers at, at bad decision making. Uh, there'll be pointing fingers at the railway railroad, obviously, and the unknown questions for down the road. You know, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, will anybody be pointing fingers at at at, at fire department uh, commanders or fire department uh, in general? And, and we won't know that. But I certainly, from my own experience in other litigation, know that uh, often. Uh, lawyers and asking questions are going to ask, you know, what has been your level of training uh, for responding to whatever the incident might be? You know, have you had this? Have you had that? Uh, What is your experience? So again, they're going to, they're going to want to determine lawyers when things don't go south or there's, there's large losses and that could be a case of a death. Uh, you know, uh, a, a significant uh, uh, health injury or, uh, you know, medical uh, injury to somebody, um, a large, large property loss uh, in cases of hazardous materials may include uh, contamination. Uh, people are going to want as many facts as they can, and they're going to want to know to what extent is a firefighter an, an expert. And an expert for purposes of lawsuits is defined as somebody who has specialized knowledge, experience, skills, training, etc. Somebody who has uh, more specialized knowledge be, uh, beyond the um, average juror. So they want they want to know: Is this fire chief, fire officer, firefighter going to shed some light or provide some information that will be helpful to the juror? Now, all firefighters, to the extent you've had any specialized knowledge, experience, or training are going to be experts. So it's going to come down to what, to what level of expert are you? And lawyers are going to want to test that. So they're going to go through your uh, training. Uh, they're going to want to look at, you know, whether you've had the uh, mandatory classes. What, what, have you, what have you done to make yourself, uh, you know, more proficient, more uh, knowledgeable uh, in your um, – uh, and, and, you know, what have you done to train to, to make yourself a better firefighter? And I think, you know, this from my discussions with, you know, some experts in the industry uh, who've had been involved in, in, you know, large um, hazardous materials incidents uh, previously, 
they're going. They have said that you know when all this starts shifting out, uh, there's going to be a number of fire officials who are going to be uh, placed under the microscope. Doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be blamed, but they're certainly going to have to uh, do a good job of explaining what the process was in terms of you know mitigation. Uh, what the decision making was, uh, and, and going through that, you know, their entire experience, which, uh, when that happens, you know, two years from now or three years now, uh, can be uh, tough to remember in detail. So, um, when you're faced with a large uh, or unusual incident, I think it comes down to remembering to do a couple things. One is, you know, rely on, uh, first of all, be well trained as much training as you can, recognize those risks, and try to prepare yourself as best you can. Nobody can be a subject matter expert in everything. So to the extent you're, uh, you have some really good basic knowledge, you know, search out those people who have more knowledge than you do. And that, that can be in anything, whether it's a water rescue, uh, you know, an EMS or an EMT, or you might call paramedic given the circumstances. Uh, water rescue may have an understanding, but you're going to have to get the water rescue technicians who have more knowledge. Same with a building collapse or trench rescue um, and for a hazardous materials incident. So you, you always want to think about not only am I going to, uh, uh, I, I want to be well-versed, uh, but knowing I'm not going to be the, the, the super hazmat guru if it's a large incident, you want to call in uh, the um, assistance as quickly as you can. And again, as a general rule, that goes for everything because at some point uh, you're going to be questioned as to why certain decisions were made and who made the decisions, et cetera. And you have to have that information. You need to be able to show that if it's beyond your area of expertise, you reached out and tried to, to get some help. And um, along those lines, uh, it's always good to document you know, when some decisions are being made and who was involved in them. Because again, I've already seen uh, for example, in this incident, um, lawmakers from Western Pennsylvania asking the Norfolk and Southern CEO who made the decisions to detonate the rail cars. When were they made? You know, what was being taken into consideration? So again, um, whether you're a CEO of, of, a, of a rail line or of a, of a tanker uh, company or of a uh, hazmat team, uh, you need to be prepared for those um, questions. You need to be able to explain it. And again, I'm not trying to suggest that everybody needs to be fearful all the time of of being sued. You still need to be cognizant of that your decision-making process is a good one. Um, one of the other things that, that has come out as a result of this hearing, um, and this is getting more specific back to HAZMAT, is you know how do we identify product and what are you doing to make sure that your firefighters are safe? Um, again, I was not involved in the, the particular case in East Palestine as to how product in the rail cars were uh, were identified. Uh, one of the issues that has come that has arisen during the um, Senate hearings was the the uh, national use of a phone app by the uh, reference or named Ask Rails. Ask Rails is an app that is used to identify product in rail cars under certain circumstances. You can identify this in every rail car. It's, it's useful for identifying uh, the product and, and giving you information uh, about it. Um, and 
as, as fire departments, um, we should uh, make sure that our, our first responders uh, in our departments have access to that app. If they're not aware of it, um, ask, you know, uh, do you have us on your phones? Now, I, my position is ask Rails is not the uh, be-all, end-all uh, solution to trying to identify products. Uh, there are other apps that are out there. There's multiple tools that are out there. And we also have to understand that sometimes it's difficult to obtain the needed information. You know, when we have derailments, for example, of, of uh, rail cars where the cars are on their side, it's night, there's smoke, there's fire, um, you may, where placards have burned off or, or the, uh, the, the cars have burned a point that you cannot uh, see or identify uh, numbers on the side of cars, uh, they may, it may be difficult to determine what the specific content is that is involved, whether it's leakage or burning or venting. Um, so we, we have to look at multiple ways of, of addressing you know, what, um, what, what are the threats that we're going to have to deal with. And again, that doesn't have to be just in the um, ta uh, rail tanker instance. Again, it could be a truck, it could be a fixed location trying to identify uh, issues. Now, Again, East Palestine, we're dealing with rail cars, and that's the Ask Rails app. Um, I, I'd encourage everybody to, to think about downloading that on their phone. Uh, that will be a question asked if you respond to an incident. Is, you know, does that, did you use the app? Well, you know, what, that, when were you trained on it? Do you know how familiar are you with it? And, again, you need to, you need to look at that. And, and we, I suggest that not only to making sure that you're legally uh, or, or, or shouldn't say legally doing things right, but putting yourself in the best position to address uh, whatever might be out there um, to the extent you can. Again, there's areas without, um, without um, internet service, particularly rural areas, and that's what we talked about at the beginning, that some of the rural areas are just uh, not able to be accessed uh, um, with respect to um, uh, Internet that they're, and they're made. They're um, just they lack the resources altogether uh, to respond to to these incidents. But uh, to that extent, you need to think about also where you have uh, regional response teams that that may be that, that may be supplement uh, your response. And again, should should make plans in advance. Uh, if you if you if you don't have the resources, if you can't get the training, uh, if you don't have the equipment then figure out how you're going to handle that. It's better to, to give some planning ahead of time than wait till an incident occurs. Because, again, that's just, it's going to show, um, uh, it's less likely to have somebody point fingers at you to the extent you've made some uh, plans in advance. Um, we, we, I, I advocated, I had the opportunity, and, again, thanks to the National Volunteer Fire Council, uh, to speak uh, not only about the FEMSA grants that really helped the uh, First responder, uh, uh, first responders to hazmat incidents, but I also had the opportunity to talk about safer and AFG grants. And you know, with the AFG grants, um, I, I'm hoping that everybody has a regular practice of, of identifying uh, their needs and looking at the grant priorities. Um, at the very least, you if you don't have, you know, SCBA, and there's lots of information that show that. Um, Firefighters just don't have enough access to, to proper turnout gear uh, or to, uh, to SCBA. Again, if you look at the national stats, uh, we, we need to better equip our firefighters. Not all departments have those or communities have those resources. So please make sure you're, you're applying for those grants. 
that may be an issue that that comes up if you don't have enough, you don't have sufficient equipment to address uh, this, this this type of disaster. What have you done to obtain it, or what have you, uh, whether it's purchase it, get through grant, or call your neighbors who who have it. Um, as I've indicated, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to ask for a lot of um, to ask for a lot of different things. Uh, out there in terms of the grant, and um, I'm hoping that uh, um, one of one of those things will, or uh, you know, in terms of grant uh, and dollar amounts, uh, I'm, I've I've asked for, or, or the NBFC has asked for, uh, to to increase AFG and safer grant programs, um, and and uh, that that vote is supposed to come up in uh, a week or two. Uh, if you've not reached out to support those grants uh, through your congress through your congressman, please do so. Those those grants are as important as uh, any anything out there. A senator is going to vote on that, so so reach out to your senator. And uh, um, number of, there's a number of sponsors uh, through that program. Uh, Senator Peters. Uh, Senator Collins, uh, Murkowski, and Carper um, have have uh, sponsored um, that legislation. And again, uh, at the hearing, uh, Senator uh, Peters was uh, was uh, brought out and recognized the need for our fire fire departments nationally to have that support. And, and again, please, uh, we need to recognize those senators. Uh, for their their support of the fire department and, and ask them to continue that support um, as we move forward. Um, one of the other things that that comes up often uh, is what we're doing to monitor our health. Uh, there are state rules in some locations that require annual medical certifications if you're going to use SCBA. Uh, you need to be somewhat familiar with at least the respi federal respiratory standards uh, to what extent your state has adopted those. Um, you'll see the uh, Code of Federal Regulations, uh, Section uh, 1910.134. Uh, there's a respiratory question there that generally uh, should be filled out and completed, uh, reviewed by a physician. Ohio's rule uh, requires annual medical certification, which can be satisfied by completing the certification uh, found in appendix uh, to the to the uh, uh, OSHA 190 again 1910 1.34 uh, uh, appendix C, and uh, having that questionnaire filled out by the employee and, and reviewed. And I say employee meaning member or volunteer. Um, we need to think about, and, and again, it's often expensive to do, is developing some type of uh, annual medical review, figuring out how we're going to screen for, for cancer, for heart attacks, and the other things that can kill us. Uh, we, As volunteers, I'll say this, we tend to be um, not in the best of shape. I, I probably could say that for, for career firefighters as well. Many I know we could, we could all do a better job of taking care of ourselves. Um, uh, cancer in, in, in Ohio is, is covered under workers' comp unless you smoke or you're uh, older. Uh, and we need to take into account, you know, what we can, that, that there are advantages under workers' comp to, to take care of. Um, the NBFC, again, is advocating for um, uh, more uh, uh, 
more money to address the the uh, physical fitness and, and cancer uh, uh, causes. Looking for again, and and with respect specifically to um, hazmat incidents, trying to develop uh, you know post-exposure baseline and follow medical testing on first responders. Um, so I think you know that's the the, the and that's a follow-up. I, I should also acknowledge with the. International Association of Fire Chiefs Volunteer Combination Officer Section uh, Lavender uh, Ribbon Report, which was produced just a couple of years ago, to talk about you know what's a comprehensive best practice guide to reduce toxic toxic exposure, and that doesn't just come from again tra- train wrecks. That comes from everyday firefighting things that you know we're exposed to carcinogens as a result of you know structure fires. So we need to we need to take a look at those. And again, this is part of being progressive with the department and trying to do some risk reduction. You know, I've, I've, today I've been walking the fine line and talking about my experiences, you know, as a witness, talking about, I think, many of these important issues, uh, talking about what some of the standards are um, and what we should be doing um, and, and trying to recognize this is also a law show. And, and the purpose of my comment is to say, you know, how do we, from, from, if you're an incident commander, if you're a fire chief, you're a fire commissioner, trying to address um, those um, uh, needs and, and, and deficiencies bef- before you come up in a situation where you're going to have to get on the witness stand, because uh, it, it's a lot easier keeping that um, control to some extent, you know, within, within yourself saying, Listen, I, I'm right now. I'm going to identify some of the deficiencies we have where we can do better. And I also understand. Again, I'm going to acknowledge that as a volunteer, there's only so much time. And yeah, we do train on the house fires and EMS calls because that's what we go to every day, and we need to be ready for it. But we can't ignore completely uh, the need for hazmat training and the need for some plans for some you know annual medical certification plan to get apps on people's phones because if something does go sideways or you do have a really big incident, it'll be a lot better for you and your department to say, hey, yeah, we've had this training. We're able to use this app or we couldn't, we had the app, but we couldn't use it for this reason. Or we've made plans to identify products in these other means because we've looked at these things and we have our our hazmat plans in place uh, and and we know we're going to call these experts to help us out. And again, these are things that are, are, are going through every type of call, you know, do I know what I have? What am I approaching? Uh, how am I going to handle it? Am I, do I need additional resources? Do I, do I need to have additional experts, people with more knowledge than I am? What's my game plan moving forward? If it's complex and I continue to call resources, do I have a planning sector? Am I, am I writing this stuff down and documented? Document am I going to expand the incident like we, you know, we're used to in NIMS uh, that we were supposedly trained for, for that as part of our training? Um, those are all the uh, things that have to be considered because at the end of the day, um, you don't want to be the person who's going to be in a hot seat to, to, to explain all your deficiencies and keep saying, you know, we're just volunteers or we're just this. Um, I, you really have to take a look at, you know, what's been your standards to date. And, and listen, I, you know, my department's far from perfect. Uh, there's a lot of things that I wish we'd done more of. And I'll be honest, I, I've got some railways running through my department through, through my our district, and and we've had some people take some railway training. You know, we've done the incident commands, we've done the NIMS 100, 200, 300, 400, 700, 800, etc. But we can we could still do more, and and we we're going to refocus. You know, some of the things that that we need to do, 
Uh, one of the things that's, that's really good is the, the railways do have some programs online that individuals can sign up and take, and I, I encourage uh, people to start looking at those classes that you can get online. And again, utilize the NVFC train the trainer programs, look at some of the courses that they have for online. And again, these are uh, railway courses, but they're also, you, you know, look for classes that you can do to talk about incident management. We look and consider whether you need to have some NIMS classes brought in or, you know, things on national incident management in general that, that will improve your department's delivery. I'm very cognizant, again, from the beginning, we've talked about the, the rural areas that just don't have the money, the resources to do this. Um, look at, again, trainer-trainer programs where they can bring it to your county. Uh, the NVFC is a wonderful resource. Also look at, uh, again, the online material. Somebody's got a computer and access to the internet, hopefully you have that. Then you can take a look at, you know, how you're gonna get that, that uh, uh, that, that information um, in your possession. Um, you know, I, I say this again from a litigation standpoint, I'm gonna just finish up, I won't keep this long, but um, I, I, I get to witness people being questioned all the time. Uh, and if you've, you've done it, if you've given it your best shot and you've made every effort you can, it's a lot easier uh, going through uh, the litigation process when things don't go the way you want to than where you've made no effort whatsoever and just turned a blind eye to the, to the potential uh, catastrophic losses, you know, that result from uh, from somebody's fault. Uh, often not the fire departments, but that doesn't mean that somebody's not going to try to blame the fire department. So um, I would encourage everybody to, to uh, be the best uh, professional, and I mean that both in the, in the volunteer and uh, career departments be the best professional you can. You know, get that education, that training, that experience uh, that makes you, you know, as knowledgeable as as uh, anybody out there. And uh, if you do that, you're you're going to be a a great professional. Uh, you're going to be a credit to the department, the community, uh, and and people will be thanking you for the job you did rather than pointing fingers. So, uh, with that. Um, I, I thank everybody for listening to my story about, you know, having the um, uh, testifying before the Senate was a, a very uh, unique and rewarding experience. Um, I'm, I'm very thankful for the uh, National Volunteer Fire Council for giving me that opportunity to talk about the needs of, uh, of the Volunteer Fire Service, you know, in terms of, again, getting us the training we need, getting us the equipment we need to do our jobs. And, and they're great advocate uh, for us. Uh, if you're not a member, if you're not a member of the NVFC, uh, please uh, consider uh, joining your department or individually. Uh, they also have a lot of other resources that are helpful for recruitment and retention. And um, you know, they, they represent uh, a significant portion of the uh, U.S. firefighters. In fact, uh, they're a national voice. The NVFC is a national voice for over 670 Thousand. That's 670,000 volunteer firefighters. It's comprise it, it approximately 65% of a nation's volunteer force. So, if you're not a member, uh, please consider joining. And if you are a um, uh, already member, please make sure you're using their terrific resources. Uh, with that, that this will conclude a, another segment of the uh, fire service court. Uh, I will uh, look for you next time, uh, and hopefully. Uh, at that point, uh, John Murphy, 
uh, Kurt Verone and Brad Kipinski will be able to uh, join us. Um, Have a uh, great evening, great weekend, and and please uh, be safe.